Welcome to Triple Bladed Sword, the podcast that looks at the science fiction, fantasy, and horror that we read, watch, and play. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Pershawn. I teach English at McEwen University, and the following is a lecture that I gave my students in a course where we're looking at 100 years of horror, decade by decade. This week, we're looking at the 1940s and the Val Luton Jacques Tournier film Cat People. Now, last week, I had promised that I was going to talk about the studio system, and then I got talking about a bunch of other things involving The Bride of Frankenstein, and I never came back around to the studio system. So those of you who listen to this who are not my students can uh, enjoy knowing that you've had a true Mike Pershawn experience and that my brain runs a bit like a bullet train, and I run off of notes in a sort of jazz approach where, you know, I know the song, but I don't always know all of the notes that I'm going to play, or am I going to play the solo the same way I did last time, and uh, and just skipped over. And so, you know, you, I, I don't come back around sometimes to things, and then later on students will say, hey, hey, you, you were going to talk about the studio system. Thankfully, I remembered that I was supposed to talk about the studio system while I was putting the notes together for this week's uh, lecture on cat people, because I really think you need to understand the studio system to understand why cat people is this landmark in the history of horror films. Uh, people will look at it and go, oh, I don't really get it. It's kind of cheesy. It's super hokey. It's, you know, the, the acting is wooden. Sure. But if we understand where the studio system was at, what was going on, and we understand what cat people did for its studio, and we can see here uh, at the beginning of the film, it's an RKO radio picture that RKO Studios uh, benefited hugely from this cheaply made, low-budget, but well-crafted film. So let's talk about the studio system to begin. Um, by 1930, um, and, and Cat People was made in 1942, so, but we need to know the, the history here. By 1930, 95% of American uh, film was in the hands of eight studios, and there were five of those that were considered the major players, uh, and they were referred to as the Big Five. David A. Cook, in A History of Narrative Film, says that the major studios were organized as vertically integrated corporations. What does that mean? What's a vertically integrated corporation? Well, it means that they controlled the production, distribution, and exhibition of their films through their ownership back to Cook here, back through their ownership of film exchanges and theater changes. And film exchanges were a way for um, theater chains that weren't owned by that particular company to rent, uh, to rent the film. So, you know, in a little indie theater or another chain potentially uh, might want to rent someone else's film. And that was what film exchanges were, which is renting the reels. Uh, the, the big five were MGM, best known, I think, at this point in history. Well, they, it wasn't a big box office smash, but we would know it, uh, uh, The Wizard of Oz. Um, Paramount, uh, we remember Cecil B. DeMille's biblical epics, his period epics, such as Cleopatra coming from Paramount. Um, Warner Brothers, responsible for one of the first films to use synchronized sound, The Jazz Singer, starring Al Jolson. 20th Century Fox, who had Shirley Temple, on their roster of studio actors, so contract actors. What we need to know about the studio system, and, and Shirley Temple demonstrates this, is that if an actor was on contract to a particular studio, they couldn't just run off and do a film with another one. So when MGM, you know, some of the people at MGM wanted uh, Shirley Temple for the role of Dorothy, they couldn't have her because she was busy doing stuff for 20th Century Fox. And we might think, based on the trajectory of this course, that Universal Studios, with their big hits uh, with Dracula and especially Frankenstein, and then again with Bride of Frankenstein, that maybe they were the fifth of the major five, but they weren't. They were sort of sitting off as an outlier. And the reason for this, according to David Cook, is that um, they failed to acquire a chain of first run theaters in in major metropolitan downtown areas so the other the big five had these first run theaters and they were located downtown it was prestigious that's where the movies went initially and that's where the big box office was to be made i mean that's still true today that the initial box office is usually the big take so it wasn't universal no instead it was the very company that made cat people and uh, it might seem odd that, you know, we've got this big film company making a low-budget 
horror film? Why weren't they making a big budget horror film? Well, they had made big budget films. Uh, I don't want to say horror films when I talk about King Kong. I don't personally think of King Kong as a horror film, although there are many surveys that include it as one. I think it's just a monster movie. Um, but, you know, just because you have a monster, does that make it a horror movie? Um, no, I don't think so. Uh, but RKO Pictures had been responsible for King Kong in 1933, and it had been a huge hit. So why were they going? The, you know, why were they going this low budget w- route? Um, the reason had to do with another big budget film, Citizen Kane, uh, made by Orson Welles. This is this is a movie that is widely considered to be one of the best films, if not the best film ever made. Okay, uh, the original marketing here, everybody's talking about it. It's terrific, and it was a box office flop. Um, even though this film was innovative and precedent-setting, it wasn't record-setting when it came to uh, revenue. Uh, so they had lost money on Citizen Kane and needed to recoup it. They needed to, basically, this movie had, among other mistakes that RKO had made at the time, this movie had pushed them to the brink of um, of ruin. Enter Val Luton. Val Luton was hired as a producer by Charles Kerner, the man who replaced the man responsible for the six-film contract with Orson Welles. Um, so you can tell what happened there. You know, this person brings in uh, Orson Welles for six films. Welles' films aren't doing so well. And the next thing you know, that person is replaced by someone who comes in whose policy was, here's the quote, showmanship, not genius. Showmanship not genius. But what's interesting about the hiring of Val Luton is that it was a moment where it was like, well, we're going to hire this guy to come in and to give us uh, the showmanship. And what Luton ended up giving them was uh, was genius. Now, I want to go to a quote um, that uh, David Cook includes in A History of Narrative Film from English film critic David Robinson about the um, studio system. So we really get an understanding of what was going on here. Uh, The bureaucrats and accountants eager to overcome the unpredictable and an intractable element in the creation of films began to codify certain principles of commercial, commercial production that still prevail in the industry. The attempt to exploit proven success with formula pictures and cycles of any particular genre which temporarily sells at the expense of other and perhaps unorthodox product. The quest for predictable sales values, star names, best-selling success titles, costly and showy production values, which have little to do with art. Now, Orson Welles was a name. He had been a huge name on radio. He was responsible for the unintentional hoax of a Martian invasion with a radio broadcast of an updated Americanized version of H.G. Wells's War of the Worlds. Um, he was he was a name, but Wells brought, it has to be admitted, that sense of artistic agency um, to Citizen Kane. There was just too much about it that was too new. It was uh, too much too soon, we might say. Um, I don't personally like it as a film. I don't enjoy Citizen Kane. I understand what its contribution is to the history of film. But it's not a movie that I go, you know, friends come over and say, well, what do you want to watch? And I'm like, hey, we're going to watch Citizen Kane. Whereas uh, I could conceivably see myself saying, let's watch Cat People. Because um, one is really long and pretty dry. And you got to know a lot about film, I think, to personally, to really enjoy it. Uh, Whereas Cat People is a bit more accessible. And that's what studios wanted. Studios were interested in making safe bets. That's what studios are still interested in to this day. You occasionally have conversations with people who are film aficionados who will say, well, I just wish we could get back to the time when film was about art. And I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about because film was never just about art. Film was always about money. Um, There are moments in film where people do very artistic things and those are influential upon the larger industry of film, but the industry of film is always about making money. 
Um, and that's what the studio system was about. And they had their contract players. You had utility players, people like Kent Smith, who plays the, the, the male lead in Cat People. Um, he was, uh, he's been described as one of those utility players all studios kept under contract. A little bit like Margaret Hamilton, who played the Wicked Witch uh, in The Wizard of Oz. You might think, well, they, they went out and they did a great big casting call. Well, no, they had Margaret Hamilton on, on contract and she appeared in a bunch of other films and she, everybody had their shtick. Like if you were good at this thing, then they just kept getting you to do it over and over and over again. And, uh, Kent Smith, uh, he didn't build a huge career out of it, but he did, you know, he was always playing sort of that chiseled American, all American boy. Right. Um, and so you would have these, these, these players that were on contract to that studio. The directors were on contract to the studio and you would have producers. This is really the studio system is really about producers because producers were the ones who kept it on budget and they made sure that everything ran smoothly. And Val Luton was a producer par excellence for his time because he was able to take a situation where RKO wanted Luton to create films that would compete with Universal in the arena of horror. I mean, this is literally Cat People versus The Wolfman, which had come out just the year before. The Wolfman came out in 1941, and Cat People was slated for the very same month that Wolf, The Wolfman had been released, December, a December release a year later. And we can't ignore the overlap there. But we, we need to know about this is that, um, firstly, that a lot of uh, film histories about horror will say that Val Luton was hired to make B-movies. And Kim Newman, in his BFI film classics uh, book about uh, Cat People, says he doesn't think that's the case. Uh, the films were clearly being made to run at the top of the bill on a, on a double bill. And if you had, if you had the top of the bill, then you were understood to be the A film, the A feature. And, and New, New, I think Newman rightly states that um, Cat People was not intended to be a B-movie, but rather an A-feature made on a B-budget. Might be the best way to say it. That RKO really needed some films that they could put out there as, as A-features to make that kind of money, but they needed to do it uh, on the cheap because uh, of the situation that they'd been placed with a few of um, Orson Welles' films, particularly Citizen Kane. Um, and Luton was, and this went on for a while, just so you know, wasn't, this was not the only time this happened to Val Luton. He would be handed, RKO would hand him a title, Cat People, and say, go make a film. They didn't hand him a script. They would hand him a title, and then they would begin uh, marketing that title. So sometimes the marketing didn't always match up with the, the finished product, um, but... Uh, they could at least start pushing that they were going to be releasing whatever movie it was that they had given this title to. So Luton is given this title and there's varying uh, accounts for how he felt about that. Um, there's, you know, some accounts say like he really hated the title. Other accounts say, no, he was, he was digging it. That was really going to work for him. Um, but what there's consensus about was that he was handed it. He didn't come up with it, but also that he was ready to do something that was distinct from what Universal had been doing, which was show the monster and do it in the past. So you had this combination of gothic, gothic horror, of um, period film, and of great makeup effects, right? And Luton seemed to know, well, we can't compete with that. We don't have that kind of budget. We can't do these great big um, castles, and we're not going to be able to do the same kind of makeup effects that uh, that they did on Lon Chaney in, uh, in The Wolfman. Wouldn't be able to do the kind of... Um, effects that they did on Karloff in the Frankenstein films. Uh, and so, you know, we're not going to do any crazy, you know, uh, stuff with grease paint and makeup or in the case of the Wolfman, yak hair. Um, but rather we're going to, we're going to do something new. And this is what he said. We tossed away the horror formula right from the beginning. No grisly stuff for us. No mask like faces, hardly human with gnashing teeth and hair standing on end. No creaking physical manifestations. No horror 
stockpiled on horror. You can't keep up horror that's long sustained. It's interesting that, that Luton says this uh, all the way back in the 40s. This is something that we now know um, from the perspective of psychology and neuroscience that we can't sustain certain emotional states. And Luton, you know, is aware that you, you can't sustain horror for the entire length of a film. It's why short horror films are sometimes more pure in the emotion that they generate. It becomes something to laugh at, but take a sweet love story or a story of sexual antagonisms about people like the rest of us, not freaks, and cut in your horror here and there by suggestion, and you've got something. Anyhow, we think you have. That's the way to do it. So that was Luton's idea. Suggestion, right? Suggestive horror. That there would be the suggestion of horror within a framework that was pretty conventional. And that's another thing about the studio system is that the films would be conventional. Now, Cat People is certainly conventional at a certain level. It's conventional within the werewolf uh, film. Um, not that there had been a ton of them, but the Wolfman had been very successful. And there are a number of elements would say the you know that follows the werewolf werewolf blueprint um in that you know it's 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 got these these certain elements but it deviates from them on a number of of levels but luton was handed this low budget and he needed to do something fantastic with it luckily he was a smart producer he did a a few things that were very very uh just very practical for example he repurposed a number of sets um right off the bat the zoo was from a fred astaire and ginger rogers picture so the, mo the this opening moment where our leading man and leading lady meet up and have what they call a meet cute or a meeting cute um that's the the moment of oh you know and it's very fast compared to the way that this would be done today you know we modern audiences want a lot more build up to the pickup as it were i mean he walks up and gives a terrible pickup line i mean it, it's it's absolute garbage because he works uh, as a draftsman so what he's never been around a female artist he's never been around a woman who draws there's women who work in his office so you know there's this sort of like really buddy um so it comes off a bit cringy in 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 a modern context but it was it was conventional for its day that was a pretty standard uh, moment of meeting the staircase that uh, is uh, it, it leads up to Irena's apartment um, was uh, from another Orson Welles film, The Magnificent Ambersons, uh, and it's a magnificent staircase. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit more about how that staircase gets utilized in this film uh, when it comes to lighting, because there's, there's, there's ways in which this, this staircase is lit that it distinguishes it from the way that it's used in the Magnificent Ambersons. Um, but again, repurposing of sets, why not? Let's just use it again. We're going to come back around to this when we get to Hammer Horror Films. They really knew how to repurpose sets, uh, those, those folks at, at Hammer. Um, but it was, it was worked on this low budget, repurposing of sets, um, and then taking that standard, that, that, that standard blueprint, not only of the werewolf, but you know, of the, of the romance that this is, this is a, this is a cross genre movie. This is a movie that is ultimately, if you stripped it of its supernatural elements would work as a rom a, a romantic, uh, film as a, as a, as a romance film. Um, and at this point in the movie, I think it's amazing, right? Like the, uh, the, the way that this story is going to play with us as an audience that it, it opens with this, I don't want to say seduction because that's a little bit too strong, but there's the pickup, they go to the apartment and, um, Oliver Reed, the, the leading man, uh, Kent Smith playing him says, you make it so easy. And we think to ourselves, oh, they're going to, you know, they're going to get it on. Um, they're going to have sex. And for the period because of the production code, you obviously couldn't show it happen. It was always by implication. And the implication could be as simple as fade out, fade back up. The fade out happens when it's still daylight. The, the, fade, the fade in comes in at night. And we might assume she's, she's over leaning against the wall. Um, the shot begins in, you know, in almost complete blackness. We only see the silhouette of this, this statue of... Uh, you know, um, this knight on a, on a horse impaling a cat. Um, but then it pulls out to show Irena with, you know, she's got her back against the wall. She looks very content. She looks really pleased. She looks potentially like she's got a bit of a glow 
going, right? And uh, and Oliver is sitting on the on on the couch and he's enjoying a drink and he's, he's very relaxed. Everything about this shot says they probably just had sex. But what we'll learn later in the film is that that's very unlikely. Uh, he at one point says we still haven't even kissed. So um, it's 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 impossible to say they absolutely didn't because it's it's by implication. But but I think the the film is toying with us as an audience and would have been toying with its original audience for sure. Um, but here too, this is this is part of that werewolf blueprint because they get into this conversation about that statue, and Irena tells this story of you know the curse upon her ancestors, and um, the production design in this in in Irena's department apartment is great because there's like cat motifs all over the place there's a goya print or painting uh on on the wall on the on the hearth um behind her in uh, as she's telling the story um but she reveals that there's there's this there's this curse and that's that's a that's a standard element in these the werewolf blueprint a tale of lycanthropy that's really what we we have here with cat people is an instance of uh, the lycanthrope the uh, the shape change from human to some form of beast but for all of the ways in which cat people is like other werewolf or other lycanthrope narratives it was different from what had already been made in a very significant yet simple way. And it's once again related to um, these low-budget decisions. As I've already Im uh, implied, no big gothic castles. That's too expensive to make. But making an apartment on a set, especially if it's a set that we've already used for another movie, that's not so hard. Um, and what we get, Kim Newman says, is the first major, so this is Kim Newman in his BFI film classics for, uh, book, the first major supernatural horror film with a contemporary urban American setting. Now, it doesn't mean it's the first one ever. It's the first major supernatural horror film with a contemporary urban American setting with normal people engaged in normal conversations. Now, granted, talking about the curse of your own people is not particularly normal, but the other conversations are. The, everything else about this film, as I say, is pretty normal. It's a pretty standard uh, romantic template with this supernatural horror inserted at various points, as Luton said. The film contains two of Luton's own phobias. Touch, like being touched and even like shaking hands, and cats. My son said that at, at some point they owned a cat, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you like them just because you gave in to letting your kids or your wife have a cat. Um, because Luton's widow was, was adamant that he didn't like cats. Um, Gregory Mank uh, talks about this in the uh, DVD commentary or the Blu-ray commentary for the Criterion Collection uh, edition of, uh, of Cat People. Um, and even, but even if either of those things, those anecdotes aren't necessarily true, uh, that is the core of the horror here, is touch and cats. Uh, because this is a story of a woman who believes that physical intimacy will trigger her transformation into a predatory cat. And there's been a lot of readings of this that take that and focus right up on it. Um, we have to understand that this is a movie that is working under restraint not only economic, but let's remember again, production code, that there were these moral restraints from the Hayes Code um, where, you know, you couldn't, you couldn't show a lot of things. Like, this film may seem really strange to us because there's this reticence on the part of the heroine to consummate uh, the marriage. Um, and yet, that wasn't necessarily a, an odd thing for its time. It was pretty normal to show, show that sort of thing. So again, what we're seeing here is a film that's that's working within the constraints and the boundaries of its own time. The normality of of elements that they're drawing from other films, such as just you know being in the workplace and hanging out. There's some really mundane, everyday scenes in this film, such as the one that takes place at uh, Oliver Reed's office. Um, incidentally, Kim Newman notes that the framing of this shot, and that's one of the things that we want to celebrate about Cat People, if we celebrate nothing at all, is Nicholas uh, Musaraka's uh, um, cinematography, uh, in that the framing of this shot places 
um, Jane Randolph uh, right in the center of the frame because it's introducing the other woman to the film. So again, we're working with those sort of romantic conventions. Uh, incidentally, this is just, this is entirely trivia, but the fellow who plays the really tall, bespeckled uh, member of the group of people who work at Oliver Reed's office uh, is um, Alan Napier, who would go on to a certain amount of fame uh, as Alfred the Butler in the Batman television series with Adam West. Um, but again, this is like, it's a, it's a perfectly normal everyday scene. And then we have, you know, the scene of them, we get another one of those scenes where the movie is playing with us, where we might assume that they have just had sex, even though they're both fully clothed, there's still the implication that maybe, uh, there was some form of physical intimacy. Uh, and yet this is the moment we find out about this red reticence, for her, for um, Irena to consummate her love for Oliver Reed, they he he says in this scene like we still haven't kissed, and in America it's normal for people to kiss. And she says, "Hey, you know what? I'm just I I can't do that. I can't I can't go there." But everything about the way that this scene is staged implies that 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 should be there. Um, and so this is like I say said earlier. This is a period in which um, film couples were still sleeping in separate beds because of the Hayes Code. Um, David Cook, in his book about narrative, his history of narrative film, says that there were a lot of things that film was doing at this time in perfectly realistic movies that were utterly unrealistic to adult viewers. They'd be looking at that and going, "That is not how we behave." Uh, but this movie takes that and, and plays with it in certain ways. It takes that squeaky clean haze code and goes, okay, well, we can't do any of that. We're actually going to make a character who really doesn't want to. So, you know, let's pl let's toy with the audience a little bit and have them wonder, like, did they just... And then the, the movie says, no, they, they didn't. Uh, and we get, you know, the, the, the night that they are married... They're on separate sides of the door. I mean, taking the, the separate beds thing and, and cranking it up, he's going to be sleeping out on uh, the couch. And this shot of him standing outside the door in his suit, in his wedding suit, is a really great instance of how restrictive the Hayes Code was. The script had called for him to be in his pajamas. He's going to go and sleep with her. They're going to be in the same bed. And he's like, no, you can't show that. So put him in his suit. And then there's not that same implication. Crazy, the kind of stuff that they had to do to get around this. But it's a very, very um, intimate scene for all of the door in between. The way that uh, Simone Simone playing Irena clutches at the door shows that she has a strong sense of desire, but is so afraid of what she might become if she gives into it that uh, she refuses. She refuses to open the door, especially when she hears the the scream of, of the predatory cat of the panther. Um, it, it gives her pause, right? She stops before she can move on. And a lot, of, uh, a lot has been made of the Freudian undertones, as Rick Worland puts it, in his horror film, An Introduction. He devotes an entire chapter to cat people and talks a lot about how Freudian psychoanalysis was all the rage in the 1940s, um, and there was an increase in cinematic representation of uh, psychoanal psychoanalysts. So we get the character of... Um, Dr. Lewis Judd, played by uh, Tom Conway. Smarmy, smooth, smoke. I mean, this guy is just greasy. Um, and, uh, and we sort of sense that, that he's, he's a villain. Uh, potentially that he is the villain of this film. But that was that was on the rise. You know, mad scientists, all the rage in the 1930s. Psychiatrists, the, all the rage in the 1940s. Um, and I want to say at this point that, like, Rick Warland doesn't go at uh, this in, in a way where he's like, you know, this is serious Freudian uh, psychoanalysis. Uh, um, he's not giving credence to it. Uh, like myself, uh, Rick Warland gives some distance between himself and, and the idea that, that Freudian psychoanalysis uh, works on real people. Um, I've always said that Freud works well in fiction because he based his fear theories on fictional people. So bringing Freud to as a, as a, as a lens, as a template to understand what a narrative is doing works because 
it's based in narrative. Um, there's a lot that can be done with a Freudian analysis of cat people. And I think that it reveals something about how this, you know, this film's repressed uh, sexuality, because even though we have a movie where there's people on, you know, uh, either side of a door as the closest thing we're going to get to a sex scene in this film until perhaps the ending, um, this movie is absolutely all about sex. It's all about intimacy. And uh, Warland plays a little bit with some of Irina, Irina's lines early in the film when she and Oliver first go up to her apartment and she says, I've never had anyone here before. And she says, you might be my, you might be my first real friend. And Warland says he thinks that there's a sort of like double entendre going on here. If we just pay attention to the first parts of those sentences, I've never had anyone, something about virginity, you might be my first, right? Um, and and that's just, that's Warland. I don't know how much I want to, you know, how much weight I want to put in that. And at the same time, I can't deny that, you know, here's a film that's clearly about sexuality being made under the Hayes Code. There's a really good chance that that's how, uh, that, that's how Luton and the screenwriter, uh, DeWitt Bodine, uh, snuck this under the radar. It's entirely possible. Um... Warland also makes a great deal out of um, the winter wedding, uh, talking about, you know, this is a term we don't use a ton anymore, but both Warland and uh, Kim Newman talk about Irena's frigidity, as it were, right? So we've got a winter wedding, we've got a frigid bride, uh, and you'll pardon my use of those terms. Um, the, the movie is loaded with this sort of thing, though. The, the Zookeeper song, Nothing Else to Do, which, by the way, was lifted from another RKO film. Uh, that song is all about infidelity. I had nothing else to do, so I went, you know, went a courting. Um, we could, as I say, there's a lot that can be done with a Freudian reading of this film. Freudian reading of the final confrontation, by the way, which neither Warland nor Newman really make any bones about, but it's where I felt myself being sort of shoved. I mean, Warland talks about the imagery of the um the the the, the uh, I'll just jump to this of the uh, impaled predatory cat of the impaled panther at the beginning of the film that that's what Irena is drawing by the way she says that she's drawing for um a fashion magazine so she lies effectively that's one of the things that Newman points out is that she lies to Oliver right off the kick um but uh, the, the, the picture shows this cat that's been impaled. Freudian, we're going to go straight to penetration, phallic imagery. And consequently, that final confrontation between Irena and Dr. Judd becomes potentially uh, a scene um, of, you might say, sublimated rape. That it's like symbolic rape because he's got uh, the sword cane, which he pierces her with. It breaks off. Um, so in as much as it is a scene of rape, it's also a scene of emasculation. Judd is clearly emasculated in that scene. Um, but Irena is also mortally wounded. So we get all of this, this sort of thing coming out of uh, a Freudian reading. And, you know, a Freudian reading might also make, um, a, a, or I don't want to necessarily say a Freudian reading, but a reading that begins to walk down this route begins to read moments like the scene with the Catwoman played by Elizabeth Russell, the woman who comes up in the uh, restaurant when they're celebrating the wedding and says, you're my sister to Irena. Uh, they, that, that, that has been read in, not in a necessarily queer reading, but it's been read pretty much since the film came out as veiled as uh, a, a veiled reference to these women being lesbians. Um, and the screenwriter, uh, DeWitt Bodine, said, yeah, totally. <laughs> he, was, he was like, yeah, we meant that. Um, but Newman, Kim Newman says, I don't know, it feels like a reductive reading. That feels like we're, we're leaving the horror behind. Uh, and Newman does a lot in his BFI Films Classics, Film Classics book to, to sort of push back against uh, readings of Luton that try to divorce him from the genre he was working in that try to give the impression that, you know, Luton was really unhappy doing horror and really what he was trying to do was elevate uh, a, a, a bad hand of cards. 
uh, New- Newman doesn't think so. Newman thinks that Luton is a master of horror. And if we go too far afield with symbolic readings of cat people, we lose, I think, potentially the horror. So I'm, I'm, I'm a bit on board with, uh, with, with uh, Kim Newman in that, in that regard. Uh, I'm more interested in, uh, and I'm almost always more interested in, um, how the film uses, how any film uses, uh, the, uses film language to convey things that produce emotional responses in us. Um, and to, to talk about that, I want to talk about what happened once the film was released. Uh, apparently the RKO execs hated the film. They, they were not happy with it. It was too, it was weird. It begins with a quote from, you know, an imaginary, uh, psychoanalyst, which has been apparent. They, they attributed it to Freud, but nobody's been able to locate the actual Freud. It's a very sort of Borgesian move, if you know Jorge Luis Borges and all of these, uh, the inclusion of, of fictional texts within fictional texts, uh, the quote at the very beginning of the film. Um, so there's this, there's this way in which this, this feels like high art and the RKO execs didn't really get it. And th- when it was previewed, the preview crowd uh, was meowing when the film began. Now, they'd begun meowing earlier because they'd shown a cartoon involving cats. And the crowd trying to get into it was meow, because here they're going to watch a movie but, but called Cat People. And um, Simone Simone and Jane Randolph both said uh, they were terrified. Simone Simone played Irena. Uh, Jane Randolph played Alice. And they both said that they were terrified that this film was, was going to be laughed at. They had sensed, even when they were performing the roles that there was a way in which this could be laughable they didn't try to sell it that way they were playing it as seriously as they could they did not want it to be camp um and so they're really really worried and the film began and the crowd was still kind of doing this this meowing thing but once the movie got going meowing stopped so the archaeo execs didn't like it the preview crowd was ready to be a problem they were literally ready to, you know, catcall this movie. Uh, they were ready to, to be the peanut gallery for it. And then they went to silence, and then they went to screams. Now, whether or not we can understand why they screamed at the parts where Luton and Turnier wanted them to scream. Particularly, apparently, they screamed along with Jane Randolph in the pool scene. So when Alice screamed, they screamed. So it was scary for the people at that time. Again, not asking, you know, we're not asking what is horror forever and ever, amen, because it changes over time. I mean, we're already looking at an innovation within the genre, moving from the gothic horror, the period horror of Nosferatu, the period horror, the gothic horror, and camp, of Bride of Frankenstein, universal monsters in general being gothic horror, to a contemporary American setting with normal people. No, no mad scientists, no witch doctors, no any of that. Just regular people, although, you know, one of them appears to be cursed with lycanthropy. Um, but this is, this, is a, this is the genre on the move, the switch. So why this horror for these people at this particular time in this particular place. And we could, you know, there's, there's a lot to be said as Warland, Rick Warland's chapter attests to Freudian readings of this film, symbolic readings of this film, readings of its use of gender and sexuality. And I think we would understand something about the meaning of the movie, but I'm not sure that we would know any better why it was scary at that point, because I don't think any of the things that we learn through such an analysis arrive at fear, the kind of fear that makes you scream, the kind of fear um, that, that, you know, is, it generates actual, absolute ter- actual terror. Like people might be really unsettled about the idea of um, same-sex eroticism. They might be unsettled about the idea of a really powerful woman, but is that necessarily, you know, the really scary thing going on here? But we know that this film was a huge success. It wasn't just that that preview group was scared by it. Uh, it had a limited release at the Rialto Theater in New York on December 7th, and then a wide release at Christmas. So if you're looking for a really quirky way to enjoy Christmas movies next year, uh, perhaps you can, you know, 
introduce your family to cat people. Um, but it had this wide release and it was a huge success. Great big box office to the point where, and we don't want to overstate this, but to the point where it pretty much saved RKO's bacon, that it pulled them back from that brink of ruin that Citizen Kane had driven them to. And I got to say, as someone who's not a big fan of Citizen Kane, I kind of like that a low-budget horror movie <laughs> rescued RKO. Because I'm, I'm also a really big fan of, of King Kong. I love King Kong. I don't like Citizen Kane. So it's like King Kong is like, woo! And it's not really considered serious film. You know, I didn't, it's not something I studied when I was studying film. So I, I dig it. I, I, think it's, 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 I think it's fun. It's exciting for me. Um, so what is it that this film does that's scary? And I think it has to do with technique. I don't think it has to do necessarily with the subtext I think it has more to do with its use of techniques. And Warland, in addition to his Freudian content, also talks about the film's use of noir techniques, just from the perspective of camera work and lighting. And uh, he, po he quotes Paul Schrader, who was the director for the 1982 uh, remake of Cat People, which is a very different movie, just so you know. It's, very, it's a very 80s movie. Um, and Paul Schrader said, Here, here's some of the, the, the features of um, noir cinema. The majority of the scenes are lit for night. Uh, as in German Expressionism, there are these oblique and vertical lines, which are preferred to horizontal ones. Uh, actors and setting are given equal lighting emphasis. And we can see that, you know, when, when we look at the shot where... Um, Irena and Oliver are standing outside the apartment. The lighting for that scene is, is really interesting. They could have just gone with a, a, a diffuse ambient light to just light the set, but they didn't. So this is on that staircase that we're talking about earlier, the one from the Magnificent Ambersons. But the way in which it's lit makes it look, and there's a few, there's a few people who have attested to this, that there is this uh, idea that um, the lighting here is supposed to imply a cage that there's these these vertical lines that imply that that her apartment is a cage or that the relationship she's about to get into is a cage. Um, but at the very least, we can say that that isn't part of the set. The way that that's being lit isn't part of the set, but it's drawing attention to the setting in a way that a diffuse ambient light wouldn't have. It would have just lit everything up. But instead what we have are all these crazy shadows and these lines crisscrossing across the actors' faces, drawing attention to the set as much as to the characters. And that is a, a, a feature of noir filmmaking. And then the idea, uh, again, Paul Schrader uh, saying that compositional tension is preferred to physical action. So rather than showing it on screen, you imply it. And there is perhaps no greater moment in the film uh, to illustrate this than the moment when Alice is in the pool. And Irena, as in her cat form, is stalking her. We don't see a cat in this scene. We only hear one. And we see Alice's responses. We see the shadows dancing on the wall of the pool. And I, I think that, that in some ways there's, there's a scene that we're going to see later in, in the term in the movie, it follows that this scene, that, that this, this, that may have been an homage to this scene, this great pool scene. Um, and, and audiences apparently were convinced, convinced that they saw the cat at the edge of the pool, that they saw the cat at some other point in the movie. And I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about that in just a second. So compositional tension preferred to physical action. John Bailey, who was the director of photography for the 1982 version, has said that the craft of cat people, that the cinematography done by, uh, by Nicholas Musaraka was elusive rather than explicit. And contrast that with Bride of Frankenstein. They show the monster... You, you never have to work, you know, like, what does Frankenstein look like? And even the reveal of the bride isn't extended. It's like, well, they made her and I'll show her. And that was Universal's approach. You showed the monster. Now, there's this chestnut in horror conversations where they say, like, well, you shouldn't show the monster at all. It's always more effective if you don't. But Universal had had a lot of success with that. So we don't necessarily want to assume that that's true. When we get to Texas Chainsaw Massacre, they show Leatherface. It's not like they hide him for half the film. Once Leatherface is in the movie, you see Leatherface. 
So I don't really know that not showing the monster is a surefire way of always generating horror, but we can say that at this point, in the history of horror films, that this was something new, to not show the monster, to do it through this this um, mode of suggestive horror was was certainly something new. And it, playing with uh, elements of noir filmmaking. Um, Nicholas Musaraka, by the way, uh, is referred to by Gregory Monk, the, the film historian who does the... Um, the commentary for Cat People, the Criterion Collection commentary, he says that Musaraka was a pioneer of noir lighting. He's just not as well known as some of the other big players, um, but he was definitely working with it early on. And John Bailey also says that he's not completely convinced that this is straight up uh, influence of just German expressionism. I don't. I don't think there's a like. No, it's not. Absolutely not. But he also says that he's seeing a lot of Russian constructivism, especially in the scene that happens in the office that Oliver Reed works in, which, by the way, was another repurposed set. And uh, the lighting in this sequence is fantastic. Um, there's a mix of all sorts of really bizarre lighting. And John Bailey, again, this is the director of, director of photography from the 1982 version of Cat People, says that throughout the film, shadows and lighting render the walls as screens, render the walls as canvases, that shadows become decorations, and that there's this really bizarre lighting throughout the film, which was standard for noir lighting where you're lighting from the ground and that's not how we light in the real world and so this creates this macabre or at least uncanny or strange world that these people inhabit because we light from above in the real world in noir light from below moving to shadow moving to darkness that the light is always uh sort of um precarious and then blending towards darkness. I also love this sequence in the film uh, because of the whole, the phone rings, you pick it up, there's nobody there. And seeing that innovation all the way, uh, all the way back down here. But just absolutely gorgeous lighting, lit from below, creating the crazy horror shadows that we were talking about last week with Dr. Pretorius, but not as exaggerated and used in very different ways because it's the whole set that's being uh, lit this way. And we're not getting these crazy close-ups to make it look as though Oliver Reed and Alice Moore are villains, but rather that there is, there's something dark and unnatural going on. The use of noir techniques could lead us also to suggest that Irena is a femme fatale, that she is this standard character type from noir film. Femme fatale, the spider woman, the woman who draws, you know, someone into her, uh, into her clutches. I don't completely buy that, though, because she doesn't seem to be slowly luring Dr. Lewis Judd in. Dr. Judd is a, is, is a greasy uh, guy who takes advantage of a situation to engage in a sexual moment. Um, he's a predator. But... Uh, Cat People does present us to some degree with a woman who is certainly a, uh, a sister of, you are my sister, right, of the femme fatale. Because he says, you know, like, don't be afraid, Irena, right before he kisses her. She's not afraid at this point in the film. And we see it in her eyes in the shot that comes up over Judd's shoulder. You can see in her eyes, there's no fear here. She knows what she's going to do next. She, he, he is a predator, but so is she. And we get that, that wild scene that follows uh, the confrontation. But um, I also, you know, the, the scene that perhaps is, is one of the greatest in the movie is the sequence with the Central Park um, chase. Uh, a chase, a walking chase. It's not a fast-paced chase compared to the sort of chases that we're used to today. Um, moving from pools of darkness into pools of light. And the cat is often in pools of darkness in this film. Uh, so we have this, this use of these pools of light, pools of darkness. And Stephen King, incidentally, wrote in Danse Macabre his, his extended nonfiction um, meditation on horror that, that this scene didn't work for him because he could tell it was on a set. Uh, and and I, 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 when I read that, um, it's, it's quoted by Kim Newman in his BFI filmed classics, I, I just wrote in the margin, not a sympathetic viewer. That King, you know, is, is 
allowing himself to be pulled out of the movie or, or dragging himself away from the potential moment for horror. Because if we buy in, if we sign the fictional contract that Cat People presents us with, then this is a tense scene. The way that it's edited, the way that it's shot with these dolly tracks. I mean, this is a fairly static movie. The camera doesn't move a ton. And then there comes this moment in, in when, you know, Alice is walking through Central Park or by Central Park and the camera is moving. And this is all done on a studio set. So very restrictive area to be doing any of the things that they're doing here. Uh, probably reusing the same footage over and over again to, to give us that sense of, of lengthy motion. And just at the moment when Alice looks over her shoulder and we're waiting for Irena in her beast form to jump out and, you know, slash her to bits. The film does something that has become an absolute cliche in horror films. It gives us a jump scare. A bus pulls up. Air brakes. Ah! And I jumped. I jumped when I watched this. Look, whoa! Right? It was a great jump scare. Now, was there ever an attempt before to make audiences jump? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Monsters going, right? But Kim Newman is convinced that this is one of the first times that it really works. And we know that, and, and I, a number of, of the sources that I read for this lecture uh, attest to this, that Luton's crew, the people that he would continue to work with on more RKO pictures, that he was given names for pictures and then had to come up with an entire movie out of that, um, they, they started calling this technique the bus, or Luton's bus, that you would generate tension and then you would bring it to this moment of of quick resolution and make your audience jump and that was referred to as the the bus we call it a jump scare today and many horror films would be poorer without them john carpenter's halloween what would john carpenter's halloween be without all the jump scares all the loot and buses and that to me is more the um the legacy of cat people. What we get is not so much its subtext, which is certainly part and parcel of what was going on at the time, but the innovation of new techniques that were fresh for people who were looking for a new way, a new approach to horror. As universal horror movies were becoming less and less scary, as they were beginning to think about including Abbott and Costello along with their roster of monsters, Val Luton, Jacques Tournier, the people over at RKO, were working on horror films that were suggestive horror horror that made people think that they saw a cat up on the wall when uh alice is walking by central park that apparently this uh this moment uh by the pool when we see the stairwell leading down to the lockers we see the shadow of the cat is nothing more than jacques tournier's uh the director's fist in front of a in front of a light that's reportedly what that is but when we're watching the film it's absolutely uh it's absolutely Irena come to get her revenge on the other woman so i think this film is about the elusive rather than the explicit i think this film is about the suggestive horror and i think that that is its great legacy and it's why it was successful in its day and why it is still considered a great horror film even years later when many of the innovations that it brought to cinema have become cliches Next week, we're going to be changing our palette entirely, moving from black and white to the lurid color of Hammer Horror Films as we take a look at their Dracula movie, which was just called Dracula in Britain, but for our purposes, if we're sitting around in North America, is the horror of Dracula. I'll see you next week for some fangs and some blood-sucking.